If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, you can click to or turn to with me. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verse 17 and 18 is, is, is really our focal verse, but I'm backing all the way up to, to chapter 1, to the prayer that Paul had prayed. And so the title of this message is, is, is a church should be a place of community. And a church should be a place of the community, not because we need people to serve and to ushers and greeters and some of those other things. It should be a community because you need the church. I mean, it is for your benefit that we, we join together and we become, uh, we know each other, we encourage one another, we support one another, we pray for one another. So the reason you need to be a part of community is not just to serve, but it's because you need community. And you need Christian community that people will come alongside of you, encourage and support and, and help you. And so when you look at this, you, you realize that when you look at Scripture, that we, we were made, uh, we were made for relationships. We were made for connection. We were not made to be alone. That was one of the first things that God said was not good in creation, right? That it is not good for, for man to be alone. And so we were created for community, and community is a place where, where God moves, and community is a place. In fact, is you, could just, you can look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, and 90-something percent, 97, 98 percent of the miracles that Jesus did were in community. It was in a group of people, a gathering of people. But we all know this, right? The problem is that when you gather with people, people can become our greatest joy and they can become our greatest pain. They can become our greatest hurt or they can become our greatest difficulty. And so that's why some people will push away from, from community because it just hurt. And so you can go, listen, you can go through the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament and you can get this deep theological thought and that's simply this, people are weird, right? I mean, I mean we're, we're, we all have hang-ups, right? Every one of us, me included. I mean, we all have quirks. We all have hang-ups. Uh, Dr. John Ortberg wrote a book that I really liked, and the title is, is Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. I mean, you ever notice that where you meet someone and say, oh, finally I found a perfect friend, I found a perfect individual, and then you realize, guess what? They got quirks and hang-ups just like I do. And there's no such thing as perfect people. And so Paul begins talking about this issue in 1 Thessalonians about community and about the importance of community. And, and he begins talking about this issue that really and truly that, that part of spiritual formation and part of spiritual maturity is when we come to the place and we can just enjoy the people that are around us. And so maybe if we're honest, sometimes we really don't enjoy people. We may tolerate some people. We may put up with some people. We may endure them. We may gossip about them. We may make fun of them. We may, uh, we may make memes, you know, as a result of them. We may post some things on some social media. And so, but spiritual formation and spiritual community is when we come to the place and we truly, genuinely enjoy the people that God has placed around us. And so we pick up the passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, and all the way to verse 7. And I, I have four principles. I have four points in just a, just a few moments. And, and I'm going to try to get through all four. Um, I, I just need you to know for me, a sermon is not like a book report. A sermon is not some like sterile exercise that I do after I've gone into study and give you everything that I've like, I've like learned that week. I notice that God always sits somewhere in the message. And I, I notice that he just kind of joins us somewhere like a lot of times he'll join us in a worship service, right? And you kind of feel that in a song. And so I, did, I just want you to know, so, you know, if you're a note taker and I don't get to four, uh, I'll give you that after class or after service. It's not a class. Verse, seven, verse two, here we go. 
He says, so this is what Paul says. And yes, I'm, I'm regressing back to this passage. We've looked at this, but in a different way. And so this is a prayer, Paul's. But anyway, he goes, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of, of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us, of the Lord, when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what Paul is trying to help them understand, you grew in love. And you grew in love, and you grew in your love of people to all of a sudden, your message, the gospel, was going out. So I want to give you tonight, hopefully, four keys in enjoying people in your life. And just out of this passage, out of this prayer. So the first thing is this, is you have to come to the place where you thank God for them. You have to come to the place to where you thank God for them. In other words, you be grateful for the good in people around you. Verse 2, he says, we always thank God for, for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And so Paul is like, you know what I choose to remember? I choose to remember the good stuff. I choose to remember the good memories. When I, when I think of people, when I focus on people, I, I try to remember the good times that we had. I remember the positive experiences that we have. So let me ask you, when, when you remember people, when you think of people, what do you remember, the good or the bad? The negative or the positive? The things they did right or the things that they did wrong? See, Paul had, just so we're, just so we're tracking with each other tonight, Paul didn't have an easy time in Thessalonica. To this church. Remember, he went there. He raised the money. He went there. He planted this church. He birthed this church. This church started growing, and guess what? There was a group of people that did not like Paul, and there's a group of people that started gossiping about Paul, attacking Paul, talking about Paul, making exaggerations about some of the things that Paul was saying. In fact, is Paul wasn't even taking a salary, and yet there was a group of people that was going around and said, Paul's in this for the money. Paul is the reason he's doing this. And Paul's like, I'm not even taking a salary. And this group of people started attacking Paul to the place, even though it was a church he planted, even though it was a church he birthed, everybody in that church came to faith under him. Paul makes the decision to resign. And he resigned from the church. He goes to Athens and he says, oh, when I remember back on that time, I remember the good stuff. I remember the good things that were said about me. And I just want you to know, I, th I thank God. I just thank God every time I remember you. Paul could have, listen, Paul, we all know that, right? Paul could have dwelt on the negative. He could have dwelt on the pain. But Paul chose, Paul chose to remember the good. He could have remembered all the painful memories, but he chose not to. He chose, says, you know what I'm going to remember? I'm going to remember the things I'm grateful for. And maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you're holding on to some things of the past. And as a result of that, it's keeping you from enjoying people today. It's, enjoying you, it's keeping you from enjoying life today because you're, you're focusing on the bad. You're focusing on the difficult, and you're just not being grateful for the good in people because I'm telling you, pleasant memories, pleasant memories is a choice. You and I get to choose what we remember about the past. 
Friday afternoon, I did some stuff and got in, and Karen still wasn't home from work, and I don't know why I did it. I just did it. I decided I'm going to watch the 1979 Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl with the, with the Steelers. And so I pulled it up, and I started watching it, and I found myself getting caught up in it to where I'm like cheering like the game's happening. And the game ended the same way that it did in 1979, and I'm still angry about that. And you know what? I couldn't change the score of the Cowboy game in the 1979 Super Bowl the same way you can't choose it, change anything in your past as much as you would like to. And that's why Paul says, I can't change what happened to me in Thessalonica, but here's what I can change. Pleasant memories, guess what? What I choose to focus on, that's my choice. The things I get to remember, that's, that's, that's my choice. Paul would say this, remember the best and forget the rest. Just remember the best and forget the rest. Look, he goes on, verse 6, he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have, here it is, you have good memories. Not only do I have good memories of you, but I'm so thankful you remember the best of me. You remember the good memories that we had together of us and that, that, and that you long to see us as we also, also long to see you. And so listen, I just want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not saying that you deny the hurts that you've had or you excuse the abuse or excuse the weakness in people of your past. That'd be psychologically unhealthy. But I am trying to help you understand to, to try to focus on the good and not the bad. The pleasant and not the difficulty. Paul, when he writes this, he, he appreciated the, the loyalty in, in people. In loyalty, the easiest definition I know of of loyalty is simply this, I have your back behind your back. There are a lot of people that are loyal to you to your face. But loyalty is this, guess what? I have your back behind your back. In other words, I'm not going to talk about you behind your back. You know, right? You know when you're with someone and they're criticizing, judging someone, talking negatively about someone. You know that guess what? That person... They're not being loyal to that so-called friend, that person they're calling a friend. And sometimes I wonder, this virtue of loyalty, is it even valued anymore? Somebody, let me ask you, has someone been loyal to you? Do you have a loyal friend, someone that's loyal to you at work, or loyal to you at ch church, or a life group, or Bible study? Have a husband or wife that's loyal, a friend that's loyal. They didn't do anything really, really big in your life. They were just loyal to you. Would you see that as a big deal? That is a big deal. And this is what Paul is trying to help them understand. That, that, that someone that they have been loyal to him, even when they had some reasons to join in with that group that were criticizing him and could have, could have walked away. And if you listen, if you want to enjoy others, you've got to come to the place where you... You, you remember the best and forget the rest. The second thing is this. If you're going to enjoy people around you, you've got to learn to pray for them. And you've got to learn to pray for them in a biblical way. And so, so you, you come to, well, verse 2, it says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And so Paul was helping them understand. He says, hey, I, I need you to know, not only do I thank God for you, but guess what? I, I pray for you. 
And he's trying to help them understand, I, I pray for you daily. See, a lot of us are really good about praying for someone in a crisis when they have a medical emergency, when they have difficulty, when they're going through a marital challenge or they're going through a difficulty in their life. But Paul, Paul is like praying. He's like, I, I pray I pray daily for you. Wouldn't it encourage you? I know it would encourage me if all of a sudden I realized the Apostle Paul was praying for me. Can you imagine what it did for this group of people that realized that he was praying for them? Listen, let me tell you something. The best way, the quickest way to change a relationship from bad to good is start praying constantly for that person in prayer. If you life journal with us, you know we're life journaling through Mark, Mark chapter, uh, 29, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Uh, the, the disciples were having trouble, and God wasn't answering a prayer, and they're like, hey, why, why, what the, why, or they, were, they were dealing with a situation, I'm sorry, and they asked Jesus about it, and Jesus says, well, you're trying to, you're trying to make this change in your own strength. This change will only come out, this change will only happen in prayer. Ever realize that maybe what you're dealing with, a relationship or a situation in your life, it is only going to get solved in prayer. It's not out of your strength, not out of your ability to try to change them because we all know that doesn't work. If you ever try to change someone, it just frustrates two people, you and them, right? It really doesn't change anything. And so when you look at this and you start praying for someone... It does a couple of things. It can change your attitude, and it can change them. And so positive prayer is more than just positive thinking. I mean, people, listen, people can resist, like, your advice, and they can reject your su suggestions, and they can ignore you. But guess what? They cannot ignore, or they are not, or they are powerless against your prayers. Man, when you tell someone, hey, I'm praying for you, what do you pray? You know, what do you pray? And so, Paul, I think, it's, I think it's just appropriate. This is the reason this is so on my heart. For us to maybe discover the four things that, that Paul would say that, hey, when I'm praying for you, this is, this is what I pray. And now, now, it's remarkable to me. And I, and I did it this last week. Of all the prayers that Paul prayed for another individual, he never prayed God changed their situation, God changed their circumstance. Never. Never. He prayed in a way that was different than maybe we pray. And so the first thing he did, and we'll read, we'll read the verses as we go. The first thing he said, he prayed that they will grow in faith and love. He just began to pray that, well, verse 3, he says, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by, by love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul would say, you know what? When I pray for you, here's what I'm doing. I'm praying that you'll grow in faith and love, that you'll grow to this place because faith and love go together. The way you handle people, the, the way you judge them, the way you talk about them, I'm, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray that you're going to grow in faith and love. And then here's the second thing he, he prayed, that they will endure uh, tough situations. Verse 3 is, again, he says, In your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, this is a, just a little sermon plug for, for March the 20th, a couple of weekends away, the 19th and the 20th. I am going to focus on that, that, just those three words, inspired by hope. And I'm going to preach a message out of Psalm 57. 
about a how, how to find hope in the cave, how to, ha- how to find hope in the darkness and in tough situations. And so, but he comes back and he says, inspired by, by, uh, by hope, and he would say that, you know what, I'm going to pray that you're going to grow in faith and love, and then you know what, I'm also going to pray that you're, you, have this, you have the endurance and you have the perseverance to endure through difficult circumstances. And that you understand the hope that is set before you. The hope that is set before you is what allows me and what, what allows you to go through difficult circumstances and painful circumstances. So Paul says, that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that God gives you the ability to make wise decisions, wise, choi- wise choices, hope and faith and, and understand hope. And then here, here may, this might be the most powerful of all. And then he says, he says, I'm going to pray that you, you, you're, you're going to know that you are loved by God. Because when a person doesn't know, and I've been there, right? When a person doesn't know that they're loved by God and they're approved by him, they're chosen by him, their soul yearns, desires that acceptance. And that individual will try to find it anywhere, whether it's through acceptance, whether it's through people, whether it's through, through, through whatever. They'll try, to find, they'll try to find that love however they can. Here's what Paul says, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Do you know that God loves you God chose you? A very thin view of the gospel is this. It's only about salvation. It's only about forgiveness of sin. It's only about getting into heaven. If that's all the gospel is for, then it does you no good after that until heaven, right? And the gospel is this. The depths of the gospel, a broader definition of the gospel is this, is that God loves you, and God approves of you, and God cares for you, and you are forgiven, and you're accepted in him, and you're his son, you're his daughter, You're a joint heir with Christ or a co-heir with Christ. And you know what that means? That means of the same value. And it's hard for us to comprehend. But when you look at this, listen, ever since we've started this series, and and Paul is talking into the church, and they're going through hard times, right? And Paul is hammering the gospel. And he's hammering the gospel to get them to understand how much God loves us. Because, listen, if we're not careful, when we go through hard times, we'll think, well, God doesn't love us anymore. And so Paul is hammering the gospel, and I had this, I had this question, and to, to flesh this out, I'm going to have to give you just a little bit of a personal illustration. And so I started asking myself the question, why is it so hard for us to believe God loves us? Why is it so hard for us to believe God approves of us, God accepts us, that he has chosen us, Can I just tell you, this is why community is so important. That's why joining together, because we're supposed to remind ourselves of this. I mean, why is it so easy to sing, how good is he? Or to sing words like, his word will never never run out. They will chase us down has an everlasting love for us. How, How come it's so easy to read in the scriptures over and over about his love for us? I think some of that is. It's hard for us to believe that, if we're honest, because sometimes we, we don't know. It's hard for us to believe that many times, 
Because maybe we didn't have a good grasp of an earthly father. The model of what a father should be, and by the way, all earthly fathers are imperfect. They're imperfect compared to a heavenly father that's a perfect father. And so any father, regardless of how perfect they are, is an imperfect model. Because there's a limit to what they can do for you. There's a limit to what you can ask them to do. I mean, they have, they have limited resources. It's hard to imagine uh, that you could ask God for, for anything. Because if you ask dad for something, uh, he may not have the resources to do it. He may get angry. He may be distant. He may be absent. And so when it, when it came to, to your earthly father, maybe it came to availability and he just wasn't there. And so it becomes hard to believe or it becomes hard to approach a heavenly father because you're projecting that. And that was my case. And you're projecting that on him. And so maybe, maybe your dad was like my dad. Now, listen, I, I, I had a good dad. I had a good dad, and my dad was, well, he was present in my life. Uh, he was involved in, in, involved in, in my life. Uh, I love my dad, and my dad loved me, and he was present in my life. My dad was there for me, but I, I will just let you know, my dad was really, really hard on me. My dad, at 11 years old, summers were spent. He was a roughneck on, a, on an oil rig, started smoking cigarettes at 11. You know, 16, he's, you know, he's learning a bunch of stuff that a 16-year-old should not learn, and, and then he lied about his age to get into the World War II, and, 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 and my dad was hard on me, not because of impure motives. My dad just wanted, he wanted me to live a better life. He didn't want me to experience the same things that he had experienced. And so my dad, my dad wanted to instill work ethic in me, and he didn't want to raise a soft son, as he would say. And Saturday morning, 6 o'clock, he's dragging me out of bed, even in high school, and we're eating breakfast, and we're doing chores together. And we'd do chores together, and there's a lot of yelling and screaming. Neighbors would come over to see what in the heck's going on. And, and, uh, and then, then, then I would do my chores, and my dad would in, inspect my work. And, and then when it didn't kind of like meet the standard, he would explain how I could do it better so that I could, I could, I could do it better the next time. But it, it communicated to me, I'll just never be enough. And I'll never be, I'll never be good enough. And my dad was a good dad. And my dad was always there. And my, my dad, just a little story, my dad was also my little league coach, which, is, which, which was like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and I, and, and I, I, mean, I mean, he was always, he was always trying to help me to be better. And uh, I remember one time I, I hit a double and drove in the, the winning run and we get in the car and we're headed home and I, I, I'm, I'm just waiting. Well, dad, are you going to say anything? And so finally I said, hey, dad, what about the double? He goes, well, he said, you really paused to see where the ball went. If you had to run it out, it would have been a triple. I said, dad, we won the game. I drove in the, the winning, yeah, but in the future, you're, you're going to need to run it out. Well, we, we, our little league team was really good. And we had made it to the city championship series, which in Baytown, Texas, that was a big deal. I mean, there's nothing else to do in Baytown, Texas but go to baseball. And so, I mean, I mean it was packed. And I made it around all the way to third base. We're in extra innings. I score. It's two outs. I score. We win. We win city championship off to the next step. We're so excited. I'm on third base. My dad's a third base coach. My dad says, son, okay, there's two outs. Does not matter. 
You remember that double that should have been a triple? When you pause, don't pause. You hear the crack of the bat, you take off running. You hear, if it's a foul, we'll call you back. If they catch it, no worries, next inning. You score, we win. You score, we win. And so my buddy hit, hit like, a, like a fly ball into the gap, and, um, and I'm watching it because I knew where it's going. I'm watching it because I'm like, hey, we're going to win, and this is easy. I just trot in, and I started hearing my dad scream, run, 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 you know, and then some non-church words. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, my dad picked me up by the back of my belt, you know, behind my pants, my belt, and then the collar, and he literally started running with me towards home plate. They say my legs were churning as we were going. And I don't know if you know anything about baseball, but we both got thrown out. Uh, we got called out. And so we went on to win the game, but I'm like, dad, I could have done it on my own and I could have, I could have won. And so we won the city championship. And I never will forget, uh, my dad de de uh, designated the trophy to me and said, he's sorry. That he knew how hard he was own me, and, but it, it produced in me that I wasn't good enough and that I was a disappointment. I cannot imagine, and I cannot tell you how many times I've projected that onto God. Just not good enough. It could have been a little better. It could have been more perfect. And whether you've had a dad, a good dad like mine, or in any dad is an imperfect dad. Because we're human. But whether you've had an absent dad or you've had an abusive dad, you had a dad that was difficult, you had a dad that was estranged, a dad that didn't show any affection, tell you that he loved you, I want you know, to tell you that you have a heavenly father that has chosen you, that loves you, that approves of you, that you're totally and completely forgiven, that, that you, are, you are his beloved daughter, you're his beloved son. And part of spiritual formation, I believe, is working through this to understand who we are in Christ that our identity is found in him. And when you look at this issue, you look at Paul, and Paul is like, I'm thanking God for them, I'm praying for them, and then I'm praying that they will understand how much they're loved by God. And then he goes to the fourth thing, and really this makes it easy for the fourth thing, and that they will receive God's word with joy. When you understand those things, when you understand you've got a heavenly father that loves you and cares for you and has chosen you, then when you come to his word, it is easier to accept. Why? Because you know that he wants what is best for you. So many times when we pray for people, you know what we do? It sounds pretty judgmental. God, you need to change them. And here's how you need to change them. This is what you need to do with them. And if you, if, you want to if you want to pray in a way that is in line with God's will and that God answers, then you learn. Thank God for them. Pray for them. Pray that they learn how much they're loved by God. And then that they will take the word and they will receive the word. The third principle is this. If you're going to enjoy people in your life, he said, be patient with them. When you and I come to the place and we, we understand how much we've been accepted and approved and loved by God, it makes it easier to be patient with others. 
Because we understand, guess what? God is patient with us and we'll be patient with them. And you look at this, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, And as we pray very earnestly night and day to see your, you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. And God is saying, and Paul is helping them understand, hey, guess what? I don't quit on people. What I started in you, what Philippians says, right? I began a good work in you, and guess what? I will complete it. I will, I will complete it. And Paul is trying to help them understand what I started in you. I'll complete it. In other words, I won't quit on you. Husbands may quit on wives, and wives may quit on husbands. Parents may quit on children. Children may quit on parents. Friends may quit on friends. Church members may quit on churches. And many times we quit when the going gets tough or the price is too high. But I'm here to tell you, God never quits on us. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Whatever God starts, he completes. I mean, when you look at the implications, Paul is like the founding pastor. And he's going back to Thessalonica. You know why? Paul says, I'm not quitting on what I started. And God's not going to quit on you. And, 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 and you look at how God sustained that church. That, that he just said that when, when you realize that God doesn't, doesn't quit on us, and, and, and that God is doing a work in your life. And you know what? When we understand this, this frees me up as a pastor, and this should free you up in relationships. It is not your job, and it is not my job to change anyone. I am not God's policeman. It's still hilarious when sometimes at golf I'll get teamed up with some people that, you know, like aren't church people, they're not Christians, and then all of a sudden they realize I'm a pastor, and they go, oh, oh wait, we didn't know a pastor was here. Uh, you know, hey, watch what you say, you know, and they always throw each other under the bus like, you know, whatever. And, I, and sometimes I've looked at, hey, guys, I'm not like God's policeman. I'm not going to write citations as we play golf. <laughs> and so this should free us up. Look at this, verse 13, it says... This is why we constantly thank God, because you have received the word of God that you heard from us. You welcomed it not as human message, but as truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Do you realize when you truly trust the gospel, when you truly trust the word, then you believe, guess what? God's going to use his word to change my husband, my wife, my friend, the same way he's going to change me. I don't have to be God's policeman in the house. I don't have to be God's policeman down at the church. I don't have to be God's policeman down at the office. That I understand that, guess what? God is going to use his word to effectively begin to change people. Because here's our mistake. So many times we judge people by far, how far they have to go instead of how far they've come. And the gospel and spiritual formation is this issue of just walking with him. And allowing him just to change us. The, the fourth and the last thing is this. Is that you want to enjoy people in your life. Learn to love them. Don't be so hard on them. Everybody's perfect till you get to know them. Learn to enjoy the quirks in one another. Learn to enjoy the differences. Life would be boring if all of your friends were exactly like you. Right? I mean, it's the differences. It's the differences. And we can go through the theology of this. But do you realize God uses differences for his good? 
Those that complement one another, you can go all the way back to Genesis. God used what? Night and day, water and land. I mean, all the way through, male and female. I mean, and then they, they complement one another. And so when you realize this, you realize that guess what? Man, you can just start enjoying people. See, this is why community is so important. Because it's in community. Guess what? That's why I love Fellowship of the Rockies. We are not all the same. It'd be boring if we're all Texans. I'm just telling you. And everybody said, amen. amen. Right. And so all of our differences. I mean, that's what I love about Fellowship of the Rockies. We don't look the same. We don't have the same backgrounds. We don't come from the same, you know, education or whatever, or backgrounds. I mean, you look at Fellowship the Rockies, and that's the amazing thing about this church. And so you learn to enjoy the differences. Verse 11 and 12, he says, Now may, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct, you, uh, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with what? With love for one another. That in the Greek, overflow, it's a tidal wave. It, it's a tidal wave. I mean, it's, it's a tsunami. I mean, in, in the Greek, it is like, it just, it just blows across every barrier that the world has to separate people. It blows right through that. See, the church should be different. The church should be different. And he goes on and he says, overflow with love for one another. And what? And for everyone, now he's going in the church and outside the church. So much of the church, listen, I'm telling you. So much of the church is railing about the world and angry about what's going on. And listen, you can either be an angry Christian or you can be a praying Christian. You don't get to be both. You do not get to be both. If you're an angry Christian, if you, you're not a praying Christian. You're not a person that is receiving the word and understanding what it means to pray for someone. And what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about this supernatural love where Paul would talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 13, he goes on, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. This is like one of the most amazing prayers in all of Scripture. And it's applicable to the times in which we live. Paul is coming to this place to where you got to come to the place. To you understand what it means to have a love for everyone and a love for people in the church. What it means to pray for one another. What it means to trust that, guess what? It is God's word working in your life that will effectively change you because when I try to change people, it's the opposite. It's ineffective. It's ineffective. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. And God has chosen you but for the foundations of this world. God loves you. God approves of you. God has forgiven you. And allow that love to overflow in your life to others. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?